This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 274 of the Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, and we have a special two-part episode today where I talk to two brewers about their beers recently named to our Craft Beer and Brewing 20 Best Beers in 2022. Joining me first is Carrie Fristo of Black Spruce in Fairbanks, Alaska, who shares their creative and technical process behind the truly, truly remarkable Aroma Dome Hazy IPA. And then, of course, I talked to John Garcia, head brewer for King Harbor in Redondo Beach, California, about the Café Mole Sweet Stout, they call Chocolate. Aroma Dome scored a 99 with our blind judges. Chocolate scored a 98. Both were best in their categories in respective issues of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine this past year. And both have some interesting commonalities despite the differences in beer styles, as interestingly enough, both use dry yeast. The other thing they have in common is that both have wives due to give birth any day now. So I appreciate them taking time to talk to all of us about their approach to brewing these excellent beers. We're going to dive into the conversations in a second, but first, AccuBrew is a revolutionary fermentation analysis tool unlike anything else in the market, giving brewers unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. AccuBrew helps brewers confirm consistency and avoid problems from batch to batch. From your smart device, you can track and compare sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity and use that information to continuously improve your process. AccuBrew goes beyond a simple measurement tool. With the AccuBrew system, managing your process and people has never been easier. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. Also, this episode is sponsored by CanCraft and BSG. Need cans? CanCraft has you covered. Get blank, sleeved, and printed aluminum beverage cans with low minimums plus full-service support for design through delivery. No matter the size of your business, CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to guide you every step of the way. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash CanCraft for your complete packaging solution. For this first segment of our Brewers Perspectives Best in Beer episode, joining me from Fairbanks, Alaska is Carrie Fristo from Black Spruce Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Before we get started on this, I just want to say you are an absolute saint for talking to me right now. Um, your wife, Steph, is overdue uh, with your with a you all are about to give birth. And uh, and here you are talking to me for this episode of the podcast. Uh, I, I, I Your priorities are very skewed on this, um, but I certainly appreciate you making some time to talk to talk to me and talk to and, and share some of your thoughts on brewing with our audience. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. She was all for it. She's one of the owners at the brewery, and I think we're both getting a little bored just kind of waiting around for things to kickstart here. I hope we can, uh, you know, at least kill some time in a productive way. But uh, what I want to talk about is your hazy IPA, hazy juicy IPA, Aroma Dome, which was one of our top 20 beers of the year, um, scored a remarkable score of 99 with our blind judges in the IPA issue earlier this year. And frankly, I had never heard of your brewery before you sent us beer earlier this year. And uh, watching this kind of come out of nowhere and top the the charts with our blind review panel was pretty awesome. I mean, it's the kind of stuff that I get excited about seeing. 
Um, you know, because it's, it's just that pure meritocracy of of blind judging. Um, talk to me, just give me a little, like a quick two minutes background on the brewery and, uh, and your background in brewing and where black spruce came from. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I will say that we were, yeah, equally, equally surprised and thrilled to see, uh, Romanum get a 99. And then when it popped into the best of, we were further taken aback. It was, it was really cool. Um, but yeah, so the brewery. We opened up on winter solstice of 2018, so December 21st, the shortest day of the year, a good uh, good fit for Fairbanks. It's uh, about four hours of light that day, so it was, it was fun. And we had the power go out, <laughs> which is also fun. Uh, but a little bit of history of, of me is, as a lot of people started homebrewing in college, went to University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon, um, studying chemistry there, had some friends that were into homebrewing. So started that doing that with them. After a while, kind of started picking up my own equipment. Uh, Had a a buddy down in Corvallis, Oregon, that was really into all the science and kind of technical research behind it. So he let me borrow a couple of the a couple of the basic homebrewing books. Um, got really into that, was doing some uh, pretty serious uh, organic chemistry research in a lab and kind of decided that I really liked all of the science behind it um, of of doing that chemistry research. But at the end of the day, there was nothing really tangible for me to enjoy or for other people to enjoy. Um, obviously a lot of really cool groundbreaking science going on in that field. Um, but kind of wanted something that wasn't gonna, uh, mess with my health too much long-term and, uh, could be enjoyed with friends and, and bring smiles to people's faces and, and really bring the community together. So kind of switch gears, um, actually did the same, uh, lab internship at Oakshire that, uh, one of your guests, Brian from, uh, little couple episodes ago he did that so uh did that for about three months and then uh actually uh, decided to get further education in brewing so did a master's in brewing distilling at harry watt university in edinburgh scotland so it was over in scotland for about a year doing that met a lot of really awesome people uh learned a ton uh drank a lot of of good uh real ales and uh, a lot of whiskey as well. Um, <laughs> and then moved back to the States and uh, got a job at Noai Brew House in Spokane, Washington. Worked there for about three years. That's where I met uh, my wife, Steph. She was working in the sales side of things. Uh, we moved down to Flagstaff, Arizona and uh, worked at Mother Road Brewing for about a year and a half. Uh, I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. and when we were down in Flagstaff, there was just uh, two breweries in town, one in town and then one in a little community called Fox, which is about 10, 15 minutes north of town. So really only one in the, the center. So we saw a really good opportunity to move back to Fairbanks, set up shop here. Uh, seemed like there was a really good opportunity there. So we yeah moved back in 2017 and kicked into high year and opened in December of 2018. 
this all makes so much more sense now. Um, <laughs> you know, you wonder, like, you know, has this small brewery in Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, you know, just show up on the radar in such a strong way. Uh, but certainly with that kind of brewing experience background, both in the theoretical side at Harriet Watt, which has some phenomenal alums like Chad Jacobson and others, uh, you know, out there in the brewing world. I understand now. Let's talk about Aroma Dome. Um, you know, this I thought was a really interesting, you know, approach to take to hazy IPA. You know, certainly within this broader world of hazy IPA, um, there are a lot of different approaches and expressions to it. Uh, there are some that are more lean. There are some that are sweeter, thicker, more full. You know, there is no shortage of citra mosaic orange citrus heavy or you know pineapple and tropical fruit kind of approaches you know and when we taste aroma dome I, I you know i think the the kind of driving force for me and for our blind panel was this green fruit idea you know this kind of honeydew melon this kind of leaner crisper green fruit you know piece you know with uh yuzu more so than than uh, orange necessarily but Talk to me a bit, you know, at the same time, it's, it's not a, a terribly thick beer. I mean, it is a hazy beer. It is a juicy beer. Hits all of those notes that people expect from it. And I should also say that I am drinking a can that was probably canned in April. Now it's November. <laughs> um, surprisingly enough, it, it actually tastes quite delicious um, with maybe some light honey notes that uh, that seem to complement all of these kinds of green fruit notes. Talk, talk to me about the kind of, you know, creative impetus behind this, um, you know, of, of as you set out to design a hazy IPA that was going to be appealing to your audience in Fairbanks, Alaska, you know, how did you start to approach that? It, it definitely is a, a lot of those things that you just said. And really when we were going out uh, first to design this beer, we wanted something that was new to Fairbanks. Um, there are a couple spots in town where you can, you know, have some uh, hazy IPAs coming through. Um, honestly, by the time most beer from out of state gets up here, it's already pretty old. Um, so there wasn't a spot where you could get really fresh, hazy, juicy IPAs. Uh, so it was kind of an unknown style here i mean uh, there is largely. there is that brewery down in anchorage there's that brewery down in anchorage <laughs> that makes a few of them and it also yeah, sends a yeah. whole bunch down here to the lower 48 at the same time but yeah 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 it, and they would trickle up here i, I wouldn't say it was a, a, a torrent rush of of hazy IPA coming up here from them there were some people that knew what they were yes <laughs> but uh largely an unknown unknown style up here so we wanted something that was in the realm of that hazy juicy IPA, but really took some cues from the more familiar American West Coast IPA. Um, so what we wanted to do was was take that not super heavy caramely base of American IPAs, uh, really tone that back down so we, add in just a little bit of Vienna malt into this, which gives it a nice kind of orange hue, and then a little bit of that kind of toasty sweetness to it. Um, and then just a little bit of wheat. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's less than 10% wheat in there. Um, and we've, we've found a sweet spot with it uh, to where it gets really good stable haze for us, um, but it's not super murky. 
uh, we do make some more, not always murky, but definitely heftier, hazy IPAs as well. Um, and then we wanted to pair that with uh, a little bit of residual sweetness to it, but not something that was overly heavy, still something that you could drink a couple of reasonably well. And, uh, you know, 6.3% on the lighter side of ABV for an IPA as well. Uh, that kind of all plays into that that drinkability. Uh, and then and then hit it with, we always knew it was going to be Citra. Um, again, there hadn't been really a beer in Fairbanks with Citra focus on it. Um, and then, and we did play around with a lot of other hops in it. It has actually always been Citra and Eldorado, um, but we've had some Amarillo in there. Uh, now Sultana, there are some Simcoe in it, in it in one point. Um, and we just kind of decided to winnow that down uh, to Citra and Eldorado, just because, yeah, you get that that really nice citrusy tropical note with the, the Citra, and then that kind of more sweet fruit character going on with the Eldorado, and have just always found those to complement really well. That's interesting. So what about what percentage of Vienna ends up in this beer? Uh, so it's it's pretty similar to the wheat. I would say it's probably about seven to eight percent Vienna and seven to eight percent wheat. And are, are there specific malts that you find yourself leaning towards in this? You know, there is a general lightness to it, even though it has that kind of you know sweetness to it. And I think that's kind of that what that's what makes it kind of unlocks some of these other fruit flavors in there that makes them accessible without them feeling heavy. Yeah, totally. And um uh, as far as malts, we just, uh, for most of our ales, we generally stick with uh, just Great Western two-row. They're white malted wheat and they're Vienna malt, so all all American malts in this. And then you, so you, Citra and, and Eldorado, Eldo become the kind of core hops in this. Um, you know, in that perspective, how do you use those then throughout the the process from hot side, I imagine there's not much uh, outside of Whirlpool on this one, and then uh, an even heavier kind of dry hop approach to it. Actually, for all of our IPs, we use the Flex, the Flowable Bittering Hop product. Uh, we love it. It's just so easy to use. Pour, weigh it out, add it into the start of the boil. Really good consistency. Uh, I really like the bitterness it gives. Pretty smooth on there. Uh, so we we do that at the start, 60 minute, and then nothing goes in for the whole boil as far as hops. Um, and then we, another reason why we use the flex is we actually run post boil our work through our heat exchange and cool it down to 170 Fahrenheit um, before adding any hops to it. Uh, really just to lock in that isomerization. Uh, so we hit that bitterness level, that stopped, and then we can add in our flavor and aroma hops into that, uh, the whirlpool, and really just focus on on pulling out those those oils. You are solid cool pooling on this uh, on this beer then, down at one seventy. Cool pool all the way. By the time we're we're done with cooling it down and it kind of settles, we're yeah probably at right around one seventy one sixty eight. And it stays there for, uh, we do a 10 minute active whirlpool um, where we add in, we're on a 10 barrel system. And we're, so we're adding about a pound per barrel of citra into that. 
and no Eldorado in the Whirlpool. And then we do a 35 minute rest and then start knocking off, knocking out into our fermenter. Cool. Where's the, where's it go from there? What, uh, you know, what is then, you know, fermentation look like with this? Is this a, uh, London ale three? Is this a Conan? Uh, I could see it going either way. Uh, honestly tasting it. I, I don't know exactly how you were fermenting this. So, uh, enlighten me on it. <laughs> yeah. So we, we use the humble, uh, fermentus SO4 English ale, just dry yeast in there. Um, and this really? is our, really our, Yep. Yep. We just, we, uh, you know, I have done a lot of liquid pitches and we'll, we'll use them for some beers. Um, definitely the, the Belgians and like Saison style, you feel like you just don't get the good, that good yeast character out of the dry stuff. Um, and so, you know, we've done a lot of, um, uh, yeast brinks and harvesting yeast and repitching. And especially when we were starting, we just weren't brewing that much. Um, and kind of talk to some other people up here that it's way easier logistics wise to order, uh, 20 bricks of yeast and then just have them on hand in the walk-in cooler can change up the brew schedule a lot easier than, than trying to overnight liquid yeast up here. It, you, like I said, you can definitely do it and there are times where you need to do it. Um, but so we started doing that and kind of toyed around with the fermentation temperature and profile on it and have, have really settled into something that, that I feel like really works for us. Uh, so we knock out at about 66 degrees and then, uh, just free rise up to 68, uh, for a couple of days and then let that free rise up to 72 for a D rest, diacetyl rest there. Um, once it passes, then we, we move on with the process. So you do a full fermentation before dry hop and then uh, drop yeast before, or is there some biotransformation approach with this beer? No, no, no active fermentation dry hop. Um, You know, really what we're, we're trying to do with that, that cool pool is loading up the wort stream with, with any sort of compounds that could be biotransformed in the fermentation. Um, so we're kind of relying on that step for for loading up the wort stream, and then when we're dry hopping, we really just want that dry hop character from the hops that that we're throwing in there. And so we'll actually do um, after it passes diacetyl, do a soft crash to 55 uh, for a couple of days, dump yeast, and then add in our hops. And for dry hopping, we're doing it's just over two pounds per barrel split evenly between Citra and Eldorado. You know, in terms of, of haze stability, grabbing that kind of haze out of uh, a dry yeast is maybe something a little unexpected uh, for brewers that may be listening to this. Um, you know, again, it's a very safe choice to, to focus on liquid yeast. And so I'm curious, you know, as you worked with this yeast to try to make sure that you were achieving that kind of stability are there some other steps that you took along the way to find a way to make that hey you know to focus on that kind of haze positivity and haze stability in the finished beer yeah so i mean one of the big things and i know you know most people do it for hazy mpas is trying to get that mash ph down to about five two so we shoot for that that seems to help with um 
loading up the the work stream with those haze positive proteins. Uh, we also, after dry hop, um, we rouse it over two days, just for about a minute at a time uh, to check, or and then check out of the fermenter to see that those hops are resuspended. Um, so I don't know if we're, by mixing, we're getting more polyphenols extracted out of the hops, or so getting more that polyphenol haze protein or excuse me, polyphenol protein haze going on uh, by reintroducing those hops into the matrix. So it's a single charge dry hop that gets that sits in there for more like for multiple days. Yeah. So we'll we'll uh, we'll dry hop, uh, let that sit overnight, rouse it, uh, you know, sometime in the morning the next day, let that settle out, and then rouse it one more time, let it settle out. Uh, so about you know, forty eight seventy two hours of contact hard crash to uh 32 and then start dumping hops off and and carbonating it getting it ready to package interesting that's a significant amount of you know hop contact time maybe more so than uh some other current hazy ipa brewers might be comfortable with uh talk, talk to me about the hops themselves you're a small brewery and so i assume you're not selecting hops necessarily as you think about the individual hops that go into a blend, this doesn't taste to me like a, you know, like a typical, I, I shouldn't say typical, not that there's any one kind of citra, you know, hazy IPA, but, uh, you know, the notes on this just, uh, they, they bend, you know, on that greener side rather than that orange side. If we're, you know, thinking about this in color terms, how much of that is, uh, you know, driven by the process and how much of that do you think is driven by the lots of, uh, of hops in the given year that you're, you're depending on? Uh, you know, we are a pretty small brewery, uh, but we actually do uh, go down to Yakima every year and do hop selection. Um, I'll give a, a shout out to Hollingberry because they are, they are amazing and love working with them. Uh, super great crew there. And they've been nice enough to let us come down um, and select more than just our Citra and Eldorado. Um, so we've done one, during the height of the pandemic, just virtual selection where they sent us some some samples and we were able to rub through those and smell. And then we've now been down to Yakima twice um, to do the whole the whole kit and caboodle, go through into the selection room and do uh, the brewer's cuts. And uh, this year it was actually a little intense. I think we had eight, eight lots of citra uh, to rub through. It was... <laughs> By the time we were done with that, it was it was definitely some nose fatigue. Um, so we're, you know, we're, yeah, like I said, very fortunate we can do that. And so I, I do think that that plays quite a bit into it as we're now a couple years into selection where we're able to kind of hone in a little bit on the, the character of the raw hops, which they definitely change throughout fermentation and, and conditioning a lot. Um, but it does seem like between last year and this year with our our hops that we've selected, we are kind of, I don't know if it's intentional or, you know, just <laughs> kind of happening that our, our preferences are leaning that way to where we are getting those Citra and Eldorado hops that are expressing themselves as, yeah, that like cantaloupe melanie character going on. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's been pretty interesting to slowly be gathering 
data on what we're smelling in the hops and how that actually translates into the beer year over year. Sure, sure. And I'm sure, you know, it's also a weird thing hearing how we, when we're drinking it, even through our blind panel, through this packaged beer process, sent down to Colorado where we were judging it, you know, to see how it tastes, you know, in this kind of context. Because all of these things, even altitude, can can affect the way that uh, you know the perceptions of these these things happen. Um, no, I, I find that really interesting. And you know, is there, uh, uh, you know, do you have some sort of mental definition for it for this, or you know, what is that? You, you know, are you trying to achieve a flavor, or are you simply being, you know, then driven by? The, you know, the inspiration from the ingredients as you're rubbing them themselves. It's definitely more of the latter. I think as we've kind of been rubbing these hops over the years and kind of getting a sense of the characteristics that the raw hops give, um, it's it's definitely informed the beer to some degree. And, and, and I will say for last year, the citrus we rubbed had a little bit more of a stone fruit quality. Um, and it, it came through the beer um, just as kind of a little side accent to it was like a little peachy note, which was really interesting. And uh, then the current hops we're on didn't quite have that same character, um, which which that's fine. You know, that it's an agricultural product. They're gonna they're gonna change over time. But the biggest thing is that we're kind of always selecting in that for right now we're always selecting in that similar vein of what we think those hops smell like. And what we think they're going to translate to in the beer. What does uh, what does that dry hop mix look like then between Citra and Eldorado as these these primary drivers then in the in the dry hop? You've got one barrel of uh, one pound per barrel of Citra in the Whirlpool and just Citra. You know what is what's that dry hop mix then look like? So we're we're doing fifty fifty of Citra and Eldorado. So just over a pound per barrel of Citra and just over a pound per barrel of Eldorado in the dry hop. That's a lot of Eldorado in a dry hop right there. <laughs> <laughs> we think it works. The uh, the CLS Farms folks have to be happy about that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're thinking about, you know, brewing this, um, you know, hazy IPA, you know, in a broader sense, what, are, what would you suggest to other brewers out there as some of the kind of key points for them to pay attention to? in terms of trying to find, you know, that kind of excellence and high quality in the hazy IPAs that they're making? Great question. And if anyone has uh, more insight, please let me know. I, I <laughs> hear all the secrets that everyone else has. Um, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of the, the, the big things for me are, um, we do it a pretty aggressive rousing of our, of our dry hops, but, but really being uh, careful with, with everything throughout the whole process um and paying attention to every little thing because it, it, it isn't one one huge or you know one thing by itself it's a lot of little small steps um but everything from getting your your mash ph right um making sure that your sparge isn't isn't going the ph isn't going too high so you're pulling out tannins and getting astringency in the beer because you really want these beers to be really smooth uh, juicy, let that fruit character shine. Um, through to the the uh, hopping in the the kettle, uh, you know we keep that to a minimum or non-existent really, um, and just trying to get 
trying to get those flavor compounds in the wort stream um, through to keeping everything clean in the the fermenter. Sanitation is obviously huge. Um, and then when you get to dry hop, uh, you know, trying to keep out oxygen as much as possible. Um, so we do a CO2 blanket into the top of the fermenter when we're trying to dry hop. Um, we don't have a, a dry hop funnel that you can pressurize and purge or anything like that. Um, but just a nice, you know, 15 PSI into the, the top of the fermenter after you have that poured off. Obviously, don't pressurize it before you have the, your dry hop poured off. That's dangerous. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, just trying to keep out oxygen as much as possible once that beer is fermented and, and you've got those dry hops in there. And then really, and I'm on the packaging line a lot, but trying try to emphasize that to our, our team as much as possible is when you're packaging, that is the last line of defense, especially in these hoppy beers that you have before that's going to go out. You know, luckily we're pretty small local distribution. So, I mean, we'll see, we'll see kegs turn over in a week or two weeks. So we know that beer is fresh, but then you send a beer to, to Colorado and then all of a sudden, seven months later, someone's drinking it. And, uh, you want that beer to taste almost as good as it was when, when it came off the canning line. Um, so that's a huge thing is knowing your canning line. Um, we don't have a, a DO meter, but I have, you know, no line and mother road, we had them. So I picked up a lot of tricks, um, and kind of visual cues of, of how to keep that DO low. So trying to, trying to keep that as low as possible. And, and honestly, just keep it fresh. If you can turn things over as fast as possible, beer wise, that's makes a huge difference for IPAs. Sure. Sure. Uh, one thing I didn't ask you about is water. What's, uh, what does water look like in this beer? Certainly that's setting up the baseline texture for it. You know, what, what does water in Fairbanks look like and how much do you then, uh, adjust or manipulate that for this? You know, we just use city water here. Um, just carbon filter to get chlorine out and it's, it's relatively hard. It's not the hardest water around, but it's definitely not soft water. Um, <clears throat> and so for Aromadome, uh, and we don't do this for all of our hazy IPAs. And I feel like it's it's one of those things where we're kind of experimenting with water chemistry, adding uh, you know calcium sulfate and calcium chloride to to the water. And uh, one time, just kind of did an experiment of hey, what if we took you know our chloride rate about one seventy five, one eighty parts per million chloride, and what if we paired that with more of a West Coast sulfate heavy um, water profile. So, you know, looking at that kind of similar range of, of sulfate. Um, so we kind of threw both in there. And uh, so we've got this weird high sulfate, high chloride combo going on for Aromadome. And <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if it really makes a difference. Maybe we back that all the way out and it's, it's the same, but it seems like that kind of softening of the chloride while still keeping it pretty crisp and, and, uh, kind of light and punchy with that, that sulfate, it works for it. So we're, we're still doing that. So we're, yeah, at about 175, 180 PPM of both sulfite and, uh, it's like that's, chloride. it's like that 
that cellar maker West Coast hazy IPA approach. Okay, I uh... <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, totally. All right, here we here we are. I'm glad I mentioned. I glad that came to me at the end here because uh, I feel like I was bearing the lead on this one. Uh, no, and, and you know, the deeper I get into this, you know, while those initial green fruit flavors are there, you know, it also tends to resolve with uh, like some really interesting kind of classic West Coast IPA undertones that uh you know that seem to to feel comfortable without being uh you know i mean it's not like that full orange and pine kind of character but it's almost just like these little faint echoes of that back there that that feel pleasant even though there's this little softer kind of you know sweeter green fruit approach in the front um what's the what's the finishing uh, gravity on this one uh it finishes at about 3.5 plato Carrie, I appreciate you talking to me about this. I, it's interesting. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the beer, as are our blind judges. I uh, appreciate you sharing your approach to this. I appreciate you doing this when uh, you and your wife, Steph, are about to give birth uh, <laughs> and welcome a child into the world. Um, why don't you get out of here, get back into the family mode there. Um, congratulations to both of you, and uh, thank you for making this beautiful beer in Aroma Dome and sharing it with all of us. And then of course, sharing your process around it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. It's been a blast. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Balancing barley and hops is your expertise. Food grade lubricants is theirs. When it comes to what you do, you're the expert. And when it comes to supplying food grade lubricants backed by service oriented professionals, Clarion lubricants are the experts. They'll work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your operation to learn more visit clarionlubricants.com slash food grade. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. For this next segment of our Best in Beer Brewers Perspectives episode, uh, joining me from Redondo Beach, California, uh, head brewer for King Harbor Brewing, John Garcia. Welcome to the podcast, John. Uh, thanks for having me. I'll just start by saying uh, this is a huge honor. Um, I'm nervous, and when I'm nervous, I ramble, so feel free to shut me up at any time. Well, you are welcome to ramble about how you brew Chaco Latte, French Toast Latte, and these flavorful stouts that uh, have come out of the King Harbor world. Um, you know, I wasn't familiar with the, the brewery King Harbor before this year, but then, or actually, I guess it was last fall when you started sending some beer our way. And when I looked back through it, like through this year, uh, you know, you, you scored a 96 in Pilsner, uh, a 95 in IPA. 298s topped two different categories in the stout issue this year. Um, high performance and really making a mark across styles with our our panel of blind judges. Um, it's it's incredibly impressive to to see uh, you know especially for a brewery to come out. But so just give me a little bit of your background. Um, you know what's what's this arc through brewing for you, and uh, you know what led you you know into the role you're now in with King Harbor. Sure. Um- so I think like most brewers, I went to school and had a history that had nothing to do with brewing. Um, I pretty much have stayed local to the like South Bay area of Southern California most of my life, and uh, or all of my life, really. Uh, I went to school for audio engineering, and just I think the theme for a lot of my education is just a, a little too late as far as technology goes. So going to school for auto engineering and everyone's got professional studios in their garage or bedroom now. So you have to know someone or wait for someone to die to get a job that's worth it. <laughs> um, did a lot of odd jobs after college. Um, 
ended up landing in um, like the digital media transfer world where I was a film technician. So I would transfer old eight miller, eight millimeter, 60 millimeter film into digital uh, for archival purposes or just, you know, family had a bunch of film they found in an attic one day. Um, a lot of interesting things that we get into another day that I saw in <laughs> film. Um, Uh-oh. And, uh, and started homebrewing because my wife's cousin, uh, before we got married, um, like had started getting me into craft beer. Uh, one of my professors for in college was into craft beer and cigars. And so whenever we had downtime, we'd be sharing stones or, you know, whatever he was bringing. Ballast Point was kind of huge around this area at that time. Uh, and it took me a while to start appreciating it, but um, the cousin kind of challenged me to a homebrew competition, uh, of which I took very seriously, and he's yet to brew once, uh, and it just got a little out of hand after that. Um, the biggest turning point was I was working this job that I just was miserable at, uh, got married, went to Thailand for my honeymoon, fell off a moped, and just destroyed my left arm. Um couldn't go back to work properly for about three months. But in that time, I realized that if I went back full time, uh, I would be stuck there for another five to 10 years. Um, and I really wanted to get out. So there were a few breweries in the, I mean, I live in the Torrance area. So I'm sure if anyone knows, there's a lot of really good breweries in this area, um, including five minutes from my house is, you know, Monkish and Smog City, sure. just to name a few. Um, so just trying to apply. Uh, found a job at this little place called Zymergy Brew Works where they kind of focused on DIY brewing. So we would have parties come in and um, we would brew with them and bottle and everything. And so um, it was kind of more like home brewing, but to the extreme. I think I brewed over 300 recipes in a little over a year and a half. Um, and we weren't smart enough to have base recipes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, right? right. Yeah. We, we yeah. weren't smart enough to have base recipes for every style. So if someone wanted a Pliny clone, sure. we'd try to get as close as we could. Someone wanted an Allagash white clone. We'd try to get as close as we could. And, um, uh, instead of being smart and having one IPA base and just change the hops. Um, <laughs> right. so that was great for, for me to learn about all the different ingredients and combos and different yeasts that you could play around with. Um, that was a lot of fun, but uh, wanted to exit there after about a year or so and um, started off as a utility assistant position at, over at King Harbor, um, I believe 2016, 2017 in that area. Uh, and then just kind of being a little prepared and, and a little bit of timing, people just started leaving and I would move up. So I was keg washer, stocking the other tasting rooms two weeks later. I got put into the cellar. Two months later, the one of the brewers said he was going to be leaving. So then I got trained up and started brewing. And uh, it just kind of happened like that. And um, uh, I guess two years ago now, uh, mid-pandemic, I was just, I love this place, but I feel like, um, you know, the only job I could take is, is head brewer and the head brewer is a part owner. So I don't think I'm going to have his job and decided I was going to finish up the day polish up my resume and apply for a few breweries as I was taking my boots off uh, pre the previous head brewer who's a uh, Phil McDaniel over at Eureka brewing now um, came up to me and he's like so do you want to be the head brewer <laughs> like that that's your job <laughs> um, I why would you ever leave your brewery but yeah he did and and I accepted and and uh, here here we are now 
Fantastic. So at that point you started to, you know, I imagine the first step is don't change anything until you start feeling comfortable in putting your own kind of stamp on some of the recipes and then create, then creating some new beers for the brewery. Right. So, um, I was lead brewer, uh, and brewing about 99, maybe 95% of the beers, um, I'm going on six years at King Harbor now, so the last two years I've been as head brewer. But before that, I've pretty much been sure. brewing most of it. So, uh, yeah, the first thing was just don't mess anything up. Let's keep everything the same so I could just learn what I haven't done yet, and uh, and then we'll start getting to it. Um, but I believe my, my first thing was just IPAs, our flagship IPA that really kept us afloat during the pandemic and kept the lights on was uh, Tiki Hut, which when it came out was called a tropical IPA, but by today's standards is pretty, <laughs> pretty old school West Coast, like very malt forward, uh, very bitter. Um, but it all kind of worked together to be this kind of magical coconutty thing, you know, before Sabra was a thing. Um, so I'm like, let's not mess with that beer. But with any new IPA, let's start experimenting with different base malts, um, whirlpool temperatures, hopping amounts, cold side and hot side, different blends that we just haven't done before, and uh, really spent the time to just try to hit every variable we could. Uh, again, as I previously meant, messaged, messaged, wow, <laughs> it's been a long day, mentioned um, before we started recording, um, was I am a big fan of, of this podcast and podcasts in general. So listening to brewers that I really look up to, like Evan at Green Cheek or Highland Park or uh, Pine House Pizza. We went there before my first kid was born and f fell in love with training binds. And now it's this thing that <laughs> all these brewers I respect are, are brewing. And I'm like, awesome. My palate was on point. Um, but just listening to how people do do everything and anything and just uh, being open to trying things, even if I didn't have a really good reason why, you know, I didn't always say like, we're trying this because this and it will result that and it was it's just more we don't do this let's see what happens on our setup the way we do things and um over just trial and error and I, we had a lot of ipas that were just way too bitter just unbalanced i think we finally are starting to to get in a realm where we're we're happy with things and uh we're always tweaking and changing i think uh, a lot of brewers I, I look up to kind of do the same thing. Clearly, you, you take this kind of tinkerer approach right. and, and, you know, you're listening to a lot. You're trying to bring a lot of inputs in. Um, you're trying to learn from folks that are doing things well, um, you know, but tackling things like, you know, spiced and flavored stouts, you know, where you're balancing, you know, sweetness, where you're balancing spice, where you're balancing, you know, roast flavors, uh, you know, where you're, you're putting all of these things together. And I'm going to talk about this in broad terms because your, you know, French toast latte, it was scored just as high as the Choco latte, even though it's a, you know, a, a larger kind of imperial stout versus Choco latte down in the 6% range. Um, you know, but thinking about pulling all these flavors together, you're, you're now, um, you're, you're dealing with a lot of moving pieces and you've got a whole bunch of variables to now think about from, you know, amount of, of spice, amount of heat, uh, you know, amount of roast quality of that intensity of that, you know, finding best extraction methods for each for all of these pieces, um, that, that ultimately result in this kind of, you know, smooth and cohesive flavor. So these things can be, uh, you know, palatable, really drinkable, and tastes really nice. Talk to me about, uh, you know, building these beers. Are these, or, you know, is, is Choco Latte 
a beer of your design, or is this uh, something that you have evolved then into this? And uh, talk to me about that creative process. Sure. Um, so we don't get to brew stouts very often at King Harbor. You know, um, I think one of the early uh, themes for the brewery was beer for the for the beach because uh, we we're, were very close um, to the beach and it's very much a beach city. So um, we just don't brew them that often. Um, so this is, has started from my time at, at Zymergy where, um, we were able to brew stouts more often cause it was like a half barrel system that we were working on. Um, and so I, I took that mixed with some stouts that we had brewed at King Harbor before I stepped in as head brewer that I really liked. And, and as I mentioned before, I, because we don't get to brew these as often, um, I really took my time with the recipe develop, development on this, meaning just scouring your website and listening to any podcast of any brewer that is known for stouts and their take on it. And something that was super helpful was that when I was able to go to my first uh, CBC last year in Denver and there was a, a stout seminar with, I mean, the greatest stout producers. And although I'm not a fan of 36 hour boils, I just... Uh, maybe, maybe I'm lazy. I, I don't know. I, we don't have the manpower to like have people on different shifts. So it's either me there all day or letting it do it overnight by itself, which I can't trust. Um, but yeah, just, just getting any information, trying to, to do what I think is best. And, and then so choc chocolate, this is, uh, only the second batch that we brewed of it. So I like really just gathered as much information as I could brewed it and made some tweaks and that's um, the one that you were able to try. So I have some more tweaks if I'm ever, ever able to brew it again. Um, yeah, it's really just, just the research and taking the time. I think that question of if you're ever able to brew it again, we should be able to answer um, through this, this podcast or at least through the magazine issue and the, that inclusion in our, our top beers of 2022. Um, but as you go about building, thinking about building a 6% stout, that's gotta be a base for some pretty hefty flavors. Yeah. Where do you, where do you start in that design process? What's step number one? Uh, so the main reason for this beer was because we came out with French toast latte um, it was a big hit, I think also because we did it with uh, a local uh, coffee shop, uh, Hi-Fi Espresso. We used their beans for both these beers. Um, so the local community loved it. And um, the biggest thing was, you know, people want a taste of it because it's 9%. And um, we just kind of wanted it to hit people with the same bold, rich flavor of fre uh, the French toast latte, but in a more approachable ABV. So sure, that's kind of where sure. this started. And, um, yeah, I mean, I love working with, with like Mexican spices and I don't think this beer has it, but, a, a different version had more of a Mexican style cinnamon to it. Um, I really could have gotten nutty with, you know, focusing on the mole aspect of this beer, but I, I wanted to keep it simple. I don't want it. I didn't want it to be a chili beer, but I wanted the ancho to be there, especially since people are more likely to drink the whole beer because it's, you know, a smaller, more approachable ABV that after you've had like half the glass or so, you start to feel that kind of tingle on the tongue and maybe get some of those leathery notes from the, the toasted ancho. Um, but grain bill, yeah, is, um, we start with like a, a Simpsons Maris Otter base. Uh, I've become a huge fan of, of Simpson malt. So yeah. both this beer and the uh, 
French toast latte both uh, have a good amount of Simpsons malt in there. And you find that even within this, you know, this beer where these other flavors become, you know, so prominent in it and some of that, you know, even that roast character and that kind of sweetness that's coming from other places, you know, that that Maris Otter character still comes through. Um, yeah, I, w- I would say so. I, I think if I was going to have a shot at another stout, I'd probably like to try something else just to, to see if I really can pick up a difference and if I, you know, right. which way do I lean on that difference. So um, next time I would probably either go with a Golden Promise or even a two-row just just to see um, what right. that does. But unfortunately, like I mentioned, we don't get to brew a whole lot of stout. So I know sure, that sure, I know that one enough. beer we, we did that I really liked had a Maris Otter base. So I'm like, well, let's let's start there. You know, roughly, you know, how much of this is Maris Otter as, as your base? Um, in the 63% area, I'd say. So the 63% area. Yeah, 63. That I sounds mean, like a pretty precise number <laughs> for a. <laughs> I wanted to be prepared. Area. I wanted to have all my math. Fair yeah. enough. No, no, no. That's good. That's good. <laughs> We're, so what, what, uh, talk to me about the, the rest of the, the mall building. Sure. Um, so, one thing, one of the themes that kind of carries through when you listen to anybody talking about stouts is you have your base malt. And you approach that however you want to to get what you're looking for, um, and then you they always go right to oh, and then you have your your darker malts, and those are usually five to ten percent, and then they all seem to emphasize the stuff in the middle. Um, so for us, the stuff in the middle would be Simpsons uh, DRC, which I'm a huge fan of. I, I love that malt, and then yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. What what about it? Do you love? That's a double roasted crystal. Double roasted crystal. Uh, I mean, when you just munch on it, you know, before it goes down the mill, it's just it. It tastes amazing. It's it's got this caramel sweetness. It's it already it feels like it's sticky. So I'm hoping that carries mm. over through the beer. Um, and we don't get to use it often, but I know when we do, it just the end product is is something that I'm I'm looking for. So sure, sure. That's um, let's see, roughly in a like eight and a half percent. It's, it's, it's one bag. Yeah. Um, we have a 15 barrel brew house, but, uh, we have a few seven barrel fermenters and, uh, these beers, um, just go through our seven barrel fermenters. So we're filling up like our kettle full for boil is about 11 barrels. Cause this is a two hour boil. Um, so it's, it's one bag out of, you know, 650 or so pounds. Sure, sure. And then, um, um, yeah. So double roasted crystal, and then, and then golden. What's next? Uh, golden naked oats, which I've been a huge fan okay. of. I've used them in um, actually a good amount of our hazies. Um. So yeah, that's another. Let's see. Uh, a little over twelve and a half percent for golden naked oats. Nice little chewiness, the you know, and even some nuttiness from that oats that uh, right that comes out of there. Yeah, I mean, and oats in a stout, I don't think you can. Can go wrong and even in the six percent stout it still gives it that kind of uh you know heft and, and some body right. um you know and that that kind of you know I, I think you know it's not necessarily sweetness per se but it gives it a feeling uh like that of that kind of rich right. smoothness and uh that weight yeah, rich is definitely um, that lets people a word i would use you know and i think you know as it all comes together as i start thinking about this like and we'll, we can talk about the impact of vanilla down the road but i think all of those pieces start playing together 
you know, as we wrote in, in our description of it, to play this kind of psychological game that convinces you that it's a little bit sweeter than it actually is, which is this wonderful way of make, keeping it drinkable while also providing all of these kind of you know decadent pieces that are ultimately not quite as decadent right as they as you think that they yeah. are you know you can keep drinking it even if it feels like it's uh something that you might only want to you know drink one of so uh, sorry for no no that's <laughs> i'm going down my other tangent talk to me about the rest of the of the malt here uh so then we we finish it off with all the the darker malts um did a, a blend of uh, simpson's chocolate and simpson's pale chocolate again learned that from listening to other brewers and their take and Brewers that get to that are lucky enough to brew stouts pretty often. You hear, oh, if you use more of pale and this, you get like a milk chocolate versus more of that or that. It's more of like a eighty percent dark, you know, cacao bar, you know, something like that. So I just kind of had to take their word for it <laughs> on the first run um, and went about even split. I swear I did not put you up to this. <laughs> no. uh, this is this is all new to me right now too. Um, but I have a big smile yeah, on my face. Trying to, hear to get that, you some uh, more subscribers you know, over here. <laughs> hey, that uh, you know that that somehow some of what we've talked about here in the podcast is being is actually feeding back into some of this process. Yeah. That's amazing. It's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah, John. I, I mean, um, <laughs> I wish I, I could say I'm doing this just to. To flatter you, whatever, but it's the it's the truth. Just listening to other brewers, especially with something I don't get to brew very often, I have to just collect all the data points and choose the one I prefer, the ones I think are best, and then just kind of go for it. And yeah, luckily enough, I was able to brew it twice. So the second time, I was able to make a few <laughs> more changes. You know, I'll say that versus this versus yeah. the first batch, I did up all the dark malts. Um, it was a little bit flabbier in the beginning, and I, I really. I'm a, I'm a big fan, you know, in my my ripe old age of 35, um, of darker chocolate these days. Like milk chocolate just does not do it for me these days. So I wanted to hit it just a little bit harder. Um, but yeah, so those are 5.4% sure. each. And then finish it off with some uh, Brees Midnight Wheat at about 4.6-ish. Uh, and that's yeah. because we had it. You know, this um, these beers don't really... <laughs> I'm pretty sure ownership won't be listening, but um, like if I had to sell these beers and get approval for them, they would have been knocked down so fast. So what I've done for a lot of these, what I call like selfishly brewed beers, um, is that I'll place ingredients slowly when uh, I make an order, you know, with BSG and there's like, oh, we have room for maybe three more bags of malt. Uh, I think I want to brew a stout in a few months. Let's add it there. And it's just this, this brew took four months to make before i could actually brew it just to collect, just the, to collect ingredients the ingredients on the ingredients. side uh, yeah. along with some of these other things yeah. sure sure so, sure uh, it's great when we get these kind of accolades because if i get in trouble i'll be like well look what we've done with it so <laughs> well if anyone in the ownership tries to cancel this beer in the future uh <laughs> you send it to yeah. me uh we'll have a conversation about this no uh, <laughs> um so so mash process around this you know cl clearly you know now you're you're shooting for a uh, you know smaller kettle fill on this, which means that you're you know you're still and this is only a six percent beer, so it's not you're not truly packing the mash stone right. full the way you would with a, a similar imperial yeah. stout, um, you know. But how do you approach this? Also knowing that you don't 
you can't leave a ton of residual sweetness in this at a, as a 6% beer or else it's going to be cloying. Mm -hmm. You know, you also need the, the yeast to be able to work on this. So, you know, so what's mashing look like with it? Um, so we're all, it's single infusion, direct fire setup. So we hit it at about 154 for the rest. Um, all of our beers are generally about a 60 minute rest, um, 20 minute Vorloff, and then go ahead and send it over to the kettle. So, um, we did some finagling with our brew setup and we we're able to turn our burner on without it hitting the level sensor. Um, so for a beer like this, we, we hit it on a little early because, you know, why not? Let's get some of the, those like Maillard reactions going early. And um, yeah, because it's a little bit of kettle caramelization in there yeah. too, just to, to keep it fun. Yeah, for sure. Cool. And then um, cool. cause it's a, you know, what we consider to be a seven barrel batch, um, a lot more evaporation versus a, a full, you know, a 15 barrel batch, which sure. is like, you know, 18 barrels kettle full kind of a thing. So, um, so how long do you end up boiling for? Uh, this was a two hour boil. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's still something reasonable and manageable exactly, for exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, let's then, you know, flip and there's no, I assume there's no, you know, kind of spicing and flavor addition then on the, the hot side on that. And most of that's happening, uh, you know, post fermentation. Where, where do we go from that? Um, so actually in the, um, the whirlpool, I do add, um, cocoa powder, uh, some okay. lactose and, um, I do add the cinnamon and the ancho chili all on the hot side. So while really, yeah, just to just to pasteurize it, basically. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like I, I like what you get from hot side cinnamon. We've done it uh, a bunch in our beers. Uh, it just allows us to kind of layer it in a little bit better. You know, it comes it comes across with more of like um, I, I like more like a baked a baked cinnamon. It's just it, it just kind of melds all together. And then if it's enough, it's enough. If not, then we're able to top it up on the on the cold side. So I think the way this turned out is. Um, I don't think I would necessarily increase cinnamon hot side because I kind of like where it landed. Um, so for this, I do like doing a, a hot side a cinnamon addition and and cold side. So the cool thing about a, the two hour boil is I'm able to uh, process the ancho chilies myself. So um, we've got a tiny little Black and Decker toaster oven in the brewery, and I'll devein and deseed <laughs> them again because I didn't really want any spice. Um, yeah. Just like a hint of it, I, I didn't want it to be a chili beer. I just wanted it to be like just part of of everything. I didn't want it to stand out uh, too much. Um, so while everything's happening and I have downtime, I'll deseed and devein a couple pounds of ancho chili, toast them up, um, put them in a bag, and and then just let them go for uh, a nice little whirlpool. And then it just sits in the kettle until uh, knockout is done. So you toast them then before you throw them into a, a mesh bag and throw them into the whirlpool. Yeah, in, in hopes that, um, you know, we just pull out any oils, anything like that, that'll be awesome. I mean, you just, you smell one untoasted versus one toasted. I mean, it just, my preference is the smell of a toasted ancho chili. And then, and cocoa powder, same kind of thing on that, on that hot side. Is that just really to get it well mixed through that process or uh, yeah. does the heat impact that in some positive way? Uh, that was another homebrew thing that I, that I carried over. And um, I think it, it works, you know, we're doing maybe 16 ish pounds of cocoa powder. Excuse me. I don't expect it to be this 
gigantic contribution, but um, it's one of those things that if if I we got rid of it in this beer, you would notice. Uh, so I think it is lending to something. I know I was worried about. You know what I was reading was like oil contribution, and it would ruin the head retention and whatever. And um, I mean, I don't think head retention in some of these stouts are great to begin with. So I wasn't too. I mean, I'm sitting here with a glass, and I'm able to rouse it up and, and kind of like get a little little head going again. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I think it just again just kind of adds to the layering. And the complexity. So then when we hit um, with just like cacao nibs on the, the cold side, we already have a, a nice base to work off of. Let's talk about ingredient sourcing on there for uh, for cinnamon. Obviously, lactose is just, just lactose, but cocoa powder, not all cocoa powder is the same. Right. Um, you know, and ancho chilies, you know, obviously you're getting them fresh and then deveining and toasting or deseeding, deveining, toasting, um, you know, but the, the quality certainly can matter in the, in these ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you find yourself sourcing these things from? Uh, so the cinnamon and the cocoa powder came from, um, San Francisco herb co is kind of like the main mm. source we use for a lot of our, um, yeah. I mean, anything really just, that's not like a typical brewing ingredient, you know, sea salt, cinnamon, everything, hibiscus we use a lot. Um, so it is, oh man, this is the part I didn't prepare for. It was, I think it's, maybe you know, it's a Belgian chocolate, Belgian baker's cocoa powder. It's not just like a standard one. It's it's like a, okay. it's it's one where um, I believe that maybe the fat is less of a concern and it's just a higher quality mm. cocoa powder. I found that on San Francisco Herb Co. as well. Um, yeah, cool. so we use that. The anchos, I believe, were sold out. So I had my brother uh, run to are like a local Mexican um, market. And I just told them to just, <laughs> yes! just take what you can, just as long as they, they're in good shape. Yeah. So these were like, they still had a lot of moisture to them. They were, they smelled amazing. Um, yeah. So we, we've done that a few times with the, like hibiscus and cinnamon. We just ran to our local Mexican market and, and, and picked it up. Good luck repeating that, anyone <laughs> not in Southern California with your local Mexican yep. market. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Some of the secrets you can hold for yourself there. No, that, that's great. Um, you know, then uh, how long do you, like, what t- do you drop the whirlpool at all? Or uh, um, do you just, you know, start whirlpooling at, uh, you, you know, right off of the boil temp? Um, and then how long do you kind of let that mix before you start uh, uh, knocking sure. it out? Um, so cinnamon and the anchos go in at flame out. So at the zero minute and, um, it's an active whirlpool for about five minutes or so. It's more of a visual thing. Like it's, it's going, we know it's going and then we'll stop it at about five minutes and let it rest for five to 15. Again, it'll just, it'll be a visual cue. If it's, if it's settled then we're good to knock out. And then, uh, just the length of, of knockout, it's still sitting in there. So, um, you know, just high enough not to touch the bottom of the, of the kettle. Um, so, uh, no, for a seven barrel, that's another maybe 30, 40 minutes. Yeah. Sure, sure. Cool. Well, then uh, where do we go from there? Uh, you know, knocking out, uh, he, he's moving into fermentation now. Um, um, pretty pretty standard routine around there? Yeah. I mean, our, our house strains are uh, just dry, dry yeast. So another great thing about hearing other yeah. brewers is they made me feel better about, I mean, we're just using USO5, just dry bricks. Um, 
it's worked it's worked great for everything and carrie who we just talked to on this episode is brewing his hazy ipa with uh, dry yeast also oh really um, that, oh okay cool there you go there you yeah, go yeah yeah there's nothing i mean i don't know why we were led to believe it was inferior when we were head brew when we were uh, home brewing but um yeah we switched from liquid yeast to to dry yeast a, a few years ago and uh yeah i don't at least for you know our our west coast and regular ales and and even our loggers, it's all, it's no secret, 3470, everybody, 3470 and USO5. That's enough. It's really enough. Um, but yeah, this is no exception. Sure, sure. USO5. So this is USO5? Yeah, USO5. Um, we do knock out a little, uh, I want to say colder, but I'm trying to remember what most people were saying. But you know, we're knocking out at about 65, um, yeah. but setting our fermenter to 68. So we'll let it rise a little bit. And then I believe for the stouts... Um, after like two or three days of, of like vigorous fermentation, when it starts to kind of slow down, I'll raise the temperature threshold to about 72. Um, whether or not it gets there, it kind of depending on, on the weather in the brewery uh, or in the area and, um, and when we hit it. So just, just to let it finish up and, and do, what it's, do what it wants. So for this beer, what's your uh, goal for finishing gravity? Um, so because there is lactose in there, it's it's like a, a mid-six uh, Play-Doh. So this one finished at about six-five, six-five in that area. How much of that is coming from the lactose itself? Um, probably like two to three Play-Doh is coming from, yeah. from the lactose. We did, let's see, um, yeah, 30 pounds of, of lactose for this batch. Cool. So, you know, but it's still got a nice, you know, dark, even though that, that's rel- pretty sweet for a 6% beer. Mm. It's got enough of that heftier, roastier, darker, bitter character to it, right. um, but then that entire spectrum of malt character that that also kind of supports that whole sweetness. And so it doesn't. I mean, at least to our palates, you know, to the palates of our, our judges as well as mine, um, didn't come across as cloying. It actually kind of comes across maybe a little bit more bitter than you would expect yeah. for something that's a six percent, you know, finishing Plato yeah. beer just because you have all of that middle character in there that's also nicely well supported doesn't you know i think there's something to it that uh there's cheap sugar Mm -hmm. and then there's you know this kind of well-rounded sweetness um let's talk about the rest of of that kind of cold side process so you mentioned you then add cocoa nibs then you know post fermentation you've got more uh you know some more tweaking to kind of uh build the smoothness of this uh, of the beer talk to me about that um Sure. So once everything is said and done and we know we have um, a stable final gravity, we'll go ahead and um, I think for our stouts, we're kind of doing like a slower crash, but eventually we'll get to 32. Um, And then at that time, uh, we'll add uh, cocoa nibs. Uh, For this batch, we did Ugandan vanilla beans. So it's my first time using Ugandan. Usually uh, we don't have a lot of need for vanilla, un- unfortunately, so it's usually Madagascar. Um, but I wanted to play around, and again, hearing hearing brewers talk about it, the thing that sold me was uh, a few of them were saying that they really get this like cookie dough, um, this kind of this sweetness. It's not traditional vanilla, and it, it kind of lends to be its own like special thing, and that that's kind of what I was looking for. Um, so I'm I'm really happy with the Ugandan beans here. Um, I will say we may or may not have processed these and had them soak 
uh, for a week before adding them to the tank. You've sanitized. You sanitized. We sanitized them. them. You sanitized them. Um, yeah, with a very specific sanitizer for about yeah. a week before they went into uh, the fermenter. How much? Uh, how much vanilla? You know, for this this seven barrel batch, basically, uh, it was two pounds. Okay, yeah, and then uh, eleven kilograms of of co- uh, cocoa nibs. And I say kilograms because yeah. that's how ESG thought- sells them. <laughs> Yeah. For sure, for sure, um, you know. But that vanilla, I think, was the kind of glue that pulled the beer together. Yeah. That uh, you know, it heightened the idea of sweetness. I mean, even though there's you know six Play-Doh, it's still it's still decently sweet in itself. But it it uh, you know the vanilla certainly supported the idea of decadence there. Um, but again, balanced so nicely with some of those darker roast kind you know uh, characters. How did you did you finish off the beer? You know, what's uh, how'd you carbonate it? What's your finishing goal for it? Um, so I, I think you all said it best, where the vanilla was kind of the glue for everything. And excuse me, I would I would really agree. Um, it just really softened all of the edges and, and pulled everything together. Um, and the last thing I didn't mention was that <clears throat> we use those hi-fi espresso beans. Um, it's one of their house blends called Mama Mina, and we have them do a coarse grind on them. Um, and uh, we do our own kind of like cold brew concentrate. So we'll oh, de-aerate okay. and um, kind of sterilize some water, let it cool down. And then the next day we'll add the beans. Um, and then uh, the following day we'll, we'll separate everything and and just pour the remaining liquid so it's we start with about 10 pounds of beans um and it it turns into about three gallons worth of this kind of cold brew concentrate that we we throw in there um uh and then yeah we've just luckily the seven barrels are the only tanks we have that have carb stones in them and we just we carb i believe we carb to let's see um so this batch we carb to at least our ZOM reading was uh, two, four, five. I think if we uh, were fancy enough to have like a nice readout, it'd probably read more like a two, three or something like that with a C box. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, a little lower than what we normally do. But again, that's that's what we were going for for this for this beer. So let's. Uh, that's awesome, John. Uh, let's finish by if you're tasting this again now. Of course knowing that we think it's a phenomenal beer and doesn't need any changes, yeah. but you're a brewer yeah, and you know, you certainly have now gone after, gone at it and uh, tasted it. And this is batch number two and you may not be done um, making it all it, it can be. What's uh, what's next on your mind for this? Um, it's, it's hard to say. Cause I think <laughs> this beer is a, is a little, little dated now. Um, it was brewed. I believe like early February. So <laughs> it's, it's got some age on it now. Uh, I might sure, be looking sure. at the wrong brew log, but anyway, it, it has some age on it. So it's hard for me to go off of this. I've liked the way it's, it's, it's age. It's held up pretty well. Um, like I said, I'm a, I'm a dark chocolate fan. So a part of me wants that, that part of it to hit a little bit harder, but then I have to see if, if that's going to be best for the beer. If that's just, you know what I want. So, this would be something that I'd really have to kind of wrestle with if, if I need to change it. If I do, it's going to be like 1% here or there of something changed. And at least I'll sure. feel like I've, I've done some extra work on it. You've yeah. tinkered just, just enough. enough. <laughs> yeah. No big changes. I mean, sure. uh, you guys know, I feel like you know more about the beer than I do. I'm like listening to you like, Oh, 
that's awesome. That's really cool. <laughs> and I just like I felt like I needed to try the beer for myself because uh, I got a lot of like cherry cordial out of the beer. Um, and a lot okay. of things that you guys said, I was like, oh, that's there, too. That's really cool. The power of suggestion is strong. <laughs> and really so, strong. Uh, you know, when we create our own suggestion, I'm glad that we can feed it back yeah. there. Anything you know, particular with the water in this one, uh, you know, or is this is that a, is that a, a big piece of this? Uh, I, I, it definitely could be because our the water that we get in Redondo, it comes from a few different sources. But um, every time we've had it tested, we are super high in chloride. I think at one point, mm. like six to one chloride to sulfate ratio. So for a beer like this, we don't, it's just city filtered, carbon filtered water. Uh, we don't have an RO system. Um, and and that's it. We don't add anything to our dark beers because the, the chloride is is there. So dark beers, right. uh, hazies, anything like that. But all the other like West Coasts and, and Pilsners and all that will add some sulfite to, to kind of just help uh, balance it out. So yeah, that's, I mean, we're, we're really just kind of working with what we've got. I don't know if <laughs> that's been clear with like, yeah, we decided to throw Brees midnight week cause that's what we had in the brewery. Um, but yeah, uh, work what we've got. We don't really do hop selection. We got to learn our hops and you know, they're all their own spices and we have to use them accordingly. So, it, you know, same thing here. Well, you've got a nice approach to flavor, and I can really appreciate the way that uh, you've gone about this and, and thought, uh, thoughtfully constructed this beer and then executed it in a way that uh, makes it really, you know, you know, both a, a beer that you could sip and savor or a beer that you can also enjoy more than one pint of, even in one setting, you know, that uh, it is so nicely balanced in that way that it feels sweet in that kind of you know fun dessert way where you might want a little bit more and you won't feel that guilty about it um it's a both of those the french toast latte and the the chocolate you know both phenomenal beers john i've been really impressed with all the beers Thank that you, you, you guys have sent our way this year uh i don't know what you're doing you know but i can tell from talking with you about this that uh you know there's a thoughtful approach there and that you're constantly learning that you're applying your you know what uh what you're hearing and what you're tasting uh you know in all these creative ways so keep doing what you're doing um thanks for joining me here on the podcast and talking to me about uh, this if people want to learn more about King Harbor, where do they where do they find King Harbor? Uh, on Instagram, King Harbor Brew. Cool, and the, the tap room, I assume. Yeah, come on, we've got three tap rooms. We've got the 182nd location where the brewery is. Uh, we're down by the waterfront, so any beer nerds out there, if you know where Naja's place is, uh, kind of a big beer geek destination, we're a couple doors down from then. And then we've got one more spot in the Riviera Village, um, also in Redondo Beach. Um, so yeah, come on down to any of the tap rooms. Well, John, I, it was fun talking with you. Thanks for joining me. And uh, yeah, yeah cheers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'll be back at it Friday with a conversation on Lager Brewing recorded in Brooklyn with Brett Taylor of Wild East. But until then, AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results. CanCraft Design and Aluminum Specialists are here to support your business every step of the way. And when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, Clarion Lubricants are the experts. Once again, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, let us know this content matters to you. It's your subscriptions that make it possible for us to bring you these brewing conversations every week, sometimes twice a week, and we couldn't do it without you. Um, we really, really do appreciate your support. And uh, of course, as you're diving in this holiday season, Craft Beer and Brewing makes a great gift 
for that brewer in your life or that person that just loves craft beer and wants to learn more about it. And of course, you help us continue our mission to bring you this great content when you subscribe and support us. Or if you're currently a subscriber, consider upgrading your subscription to an all-access subscription um, you know, and checking out our all-access videos and all the other things that come along with that. Uh, all, both of those things go a long way to helping us continue with our mission here. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrewing.com.